Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello and welcome to this, the seventh episode of our series on decolonising research. This episode features Laura Shroby from the University of Cardiff and her talk Reflexive Positionality, researching refugee mothers as a racialised mother, but not as a refugee. I am absolutely not and would not call myself a decolonial researcher, uh, a decolonial specialist or anything along those lines. I think that it is a, a very complex area. Um, and there are people that um, specialise in it and do it very well that I have found very inspiring and that I have learned from. So my work is influenced um, be, by decolonial approaches. I'd like to think I'm taking uh, some decolonial approaches, but I wouldn't um, put that label um, on how I've gone about everything at all so if you hear things you don't quite fit or or you're not sure um uh, that's partly partly why um i've chosen to talk about uh, positionality because this is something that i really reflected on um in in my work and the title slide kind of gives away a why in a way that i, I found um positionality a really interesting concept when i learned about it um, but I really didn't know in some ways how to apply it to myself um, and what it might mean for my work. Um, so I've had some learning to do and continue to learn <laughs> in that respect. Um, and I've come to believe that like reflexive positionality um, in some research is, is, well, in all research, um, but in some in particular, it is really important. Um, and for me, the reason why it was important was, um, well, I'll talk you through that. But initially, um, just because I'm, I'm part of a racialized minority, I'm a mother, I was researching with mothers, um, but I was researching with mothers who are, to keep the phrase short for now, um, from refugee backgrounds, which I'm not. So I think all of us here <laughs> with an interest in, in decolonial research um, potentially um, have that dilemma of, of how do I sit uh, with, with the social group that I'm researching, with my participants in the spaces that I'm going into for one reason or another, either because we are researching um, with our community or we're aware that we're coming in as an outsider uh, for me I, I, it's a bit of both <laughs> so some of who I am was really really important um yes I was a researcher a student a doctoral researcher but that is absolutely not the be all and end all of who I am um it's definitely not who I've always been um, and, and who, when I obviously started the PhD, who I'd been for probably the shortest period of time in my life compared to 
all my other identities and all the other characteristics that I have. Um, and I didn't feel that I'd be going into those research spaces as just a researcher. Um, my project is, as I'll talk about more, is, is heavily qualitative, focused on subjective experiences. Um, so I had to think about my own subjective experiences and who I would be to my participants in those spaces um, and as also and, and with gatekeepers um, and who I was for myself as well. Um, so I'm British citizen from London, but living in Cardiff, it's all became more relevant as we went along. I'm a woman, a wife, a mother, sister, daughter, not a black mixed race, uh, <laughs> dodgy typo. I am black mixed race. So, um, black, um, heritage, um, white as well. So mixed race. Um, I've taught ESOL, um, so English to speakers of other languages. I've taught English as a foreign language. So I've worked with migrant groups. Um, I have a, an, on the one side, a um, migrant background, although I was born a British citizen. Um, I've taught, I've got PGC qualification. I've also done project management. I have a whole load of other things and skill sets and, and who I am. Um, and and I need to question, do I bring that into my, my research? Do I bring that into spaces where I'm doing research? How much so? And how much will come with me, whether I intend it to or not? And that's where reflexive positionality becomes really important, because we may think one thing at the start, but as we go along, we need to be continually, for me, continually reflecting, continually thinking but all of that for me matters in relation to who we're doing the research and for me who we're doing it with so I was doing research with mothers who were also asylum seekers refugees sanctuary seekers forced migrants displaced oh sorry and um, for those of you who don't know much about um, the asylum system and immigration systems in the UK I won't go into lots of detail on the terminology but an asylum seeker is someone who enters the UK um, for them they're a refugee and then they they claim that they, they claim the right to refugee status through an asylum claim so they're called an asylum seeker um, it's a concept that does not exist in much of the world in fact much of the world from where uh, from the areas where uh, asylum seekers that reach the UK may have come from. Um, there are international conventions, um, and if I were um, not talking about positionality today, I'd go into those in more detail. Um, but in summary, international conventions, um, the same types of conventions that, that uh, set up many various rights um, and international laws in the um, two or three uh, post Second World War decades. So there is an international um, convention on um, uh, refugees, often referred to as the Geneva Convention and a protocol that goes with it. And it's um, got 
the criteria for what should count as a refugee it also enshrines in law that right to claim asylum absolutely everybody on the planet um according to that international law has the right to claim asylum um you'd be granted asylum on the other hand on the grounds specific grounds in that convention to do with persecution war um and so on um in the uk um you may be granted asylum um, and granted refugee status, which comes with leave to remain, um, which is usually five years now. Um, but there are other outcomes. So that's not the only outcome. You may be granted permission to stay, leave to remain, but you don't fit, the, the individual doesn't fit the criteria of the Refugee Convention and the UK's legal systems interpretation of that. So then you might be granted humanitarian protection, discretionary leave to remain, um, and, and so on, or, or protection as a stateless person. Um, it's particularly relevant, and why I've gone into this level of detail here, for, for women, because when the conventions were written, the fact that sexual violence is used as a, uh, a, a tool of war wasn't wasn't acknowledged or recognised. Um, the um, consideration of an individual being in danger um, for reasons of their sex or as it would have been seen then um, for things such as domestic violence, again, wasn't, wasn't really considered. So that is difficult to argue women are part of a social group but if that whole social group isn't un under threat or a large proportion of it it's just that that one woman as it were it, it gets trickier so um women in those types of situations may be granted another type of status um which may be less than then five years uh, leave to remain there are generic terms or or uh, catch-all terms because of these layers of complexity that get used in Wales which is where I conducted my research uh, sanctuary seekers people seeking sanctuary um, is a term um, that is used to cover asylum seekers refugees anybody else who may um, need that that protection and safety that sanctuary um, forced migrants is a term that is often used uh, displaced persons um forced migrants some people love some really don't like um and they get those other catch-all for one of a better phrase terms are used for things such as climate change refugees so we hear that expression now but again that that wasn't that's not a, a reason set climate change isn't a reason in the in the international law um so in summary <laughs> to go back over all of those statements i've waffled now mothers any any mother who says that she was seeking sanctuary um is residing in wales or was residing in wales at the time that i was conducting my field work in all of those aspects that self-identifying i accepted participants truths um, their identity and their immigration status um i it was 
it's about their experiences, their perceptions. I wasn't about to um, check gender identities. I wasn't about to check claims of motherhood, nor was I going to ask for their legal documentation and go down the road of bordering with my research. So, but there was more, more to that. That was, those, those three points were really effectively my, my recruitment criteria, as it were. Um, but there were other aspects to consider. They were visible and or linguistic minorities for people who are, are racialized in the UK. They could be married, separated, single, divorced, widowed. Um, they might be living with their children. They might be living separate from their children or some of their children. Um, I, I did leave scope for, for pregnant women. Um, or those who might be becoming mothers by other means. Student mums, working mums, they might be stay at home mums, um, which might be a choice or might have been their previous um, life or their current life. And that might be through choice or through enforced circumstances. All of these were things to, that I considered, um, that I knew were possibilities, um, but also that I found as I went along and learned about the women um, that agreed to participate in my research. So that is all really important for me, and I will continue to explain why in terms of um, reflexive positionality and the overall kind of overriding reasons why we're here today. Um, so it's kind of a question of what I was asked, what am I doing and why am I doing it? So I have my own personal reasons uh, for coming into this. You know, it's no coincidence that I was a, a mother and I, I research mothers. My research focusing on their educational and learning experiences not a coincidence I'd taught that I was a, a student mother myself um, I'd worked with asylum seekers and refugees in the past um, uh, teaching and as a volunteer on projects that, that had led me to a personal interest that had developed over time but I really didn't want that personal interest to be that kind of a that white gaze <laughs> um, so when I was then looking at the academic influences on my work and research um, kind of approaches, I really became informed by, um, in summary, black and intersectional feminism um, and no, critical race theory, um, black feminism, intersectionality. Thank you, Kimberley Crenshaw. Um, racial capitalism and theories of social reproduction within social capitalism as well. These were all relevant because they help explain the lens, the theoretical lens and the perspective that overall I was approaching my work through um, and looking at it um, through. Um, particularly, um, the more I did my initial reading, um, the um, position that British immigration uh, policy is, was, was and is both gendered, racist and racialized. Um, I think with the issues with Rwanda and the questions that have come up with 
the treatment of Ukrainian refugees over others. I think that idea has become quite well accepted quite quickly um, in some circles. But when I started my um, uh, PhD, there were, there were, in fact, only even a few months ago, there were people that would still, still struggle to understand um, the structural um, systemic racism of the British immigration system. So I was looking at, and I look at the experiences that women um, talk to me about through that lens. With that, I discovered decolonial approaches, <laughs> um, which I found relevant because, well, they're the forms of model imperialism, which force people to flee from their homes, uh, economic imperialism, political imperialism, the um, interference in other countries, the bombs that the US and the UK like to drop on places um, and then walk away from or question why people are then fleeing from. The linguistic colonialism that remains today as a result of the a full legal and political empire um, with a legacy that much of the world uh, speaks and learns English, which does have an impact on why asylum seekers may come to British shores. But, but it also had its impact on me um, and why I'm only English and fluent, uh, fluent in English despite having one parent who um, wasn't only fluent in English and the context of conducting a research in the UK where the vast majority of people don't speak more than one language fluently. Although in Wales, obviously, it's a bi, the UK is bilingual, but Wales, bilingual nation. Um, but I needed to consider that. I wasn't expecting my participants to be able to speak Welsh but that I would need to consider translation or interpretation or be conducting my research through the medium of English. It also, again, coming back to that positionality and some of those things that I, I mentioned at the beginning about myself and about my participants was just acknowledging my own privilege as someone who has been a British citizen from birth and my own potential risks of saviorism and that savioristic, voyeuristic um, approach um, that can be taken in research. And just because I'm from um, a racialized uh, minority myself doesn't mean that I'm incapable of being savioristic. Some of this then also then led me towards um, other methods uh, for qualitative uh, research um, beyond observations and interviews, um, uh, dialogical uh, interviews, and looking at creative, visual, participatory, um, participatory action and collaborative methods. So those influences have led me to led me to form kind of the overall shape of my project, which is ethnographic 
and it took me a long time <laughs> till quite recently to feel comfortable using that that word about my research because of some of the negative connotations associated with it and to be sure that I perhaps had um hadn't taken that voyeuristic extractive um savioristic uh, approach entirely qualitative collaborative longitudinal um and then multimodal which is the the language and the visuals um research so my work supported more forms of expression and communication than just words which i'll talk about more um next week um i focused on both presenting and analyzing use the word displaced but um perspectives um on educational experiences in wales i've tried my best to share stories share voices and share um when i say their humanity as my participants um i haven't given them voices <laughs> they had voices already um I'm not telling their stories. Hopefully I'm, I'm sharing them. And actually today when I was checking these slides, I, I changed some wording that I'd used in the past. Again, continuing to reflect. Um, and I said rehumanizing people that have been dehumanized is how I would describe it in the past. But do you know what? <laughs> that in itself, uh, I, I may start, started to make me feel a bit uncomfortable, but colonialistic perhaps I don't know in the language but just sharing their humanity they were never dehumanized that's something other people have done um, to this group of women I conducted my interviews as mother-to-mother -mother conversations with creative methods um, which I talk about more as I go along um, I say mother-to-mother -mother conversations and um, Again, I'll touch upon this later, but because of, the, in my case, the particular perception of which my participants and gatekeepers have of the term interview. Um, and I think when you're reflecting on your position, it's really important to consider the context of who you are, where you're doing your research, who you're doing with your research with, where you're doing your research with them. In the end, I, I've getting there with the thesis and, and papers and um, multimodal thematic and narrative presentation um, and multimodal thematic and narrative analysis. So I've considered how I present um, my research, not just how I generate, I use the term generate, not collect data and how I analyze it. To me, it's an entire process end to end. Um, and Western academic traditions, there's still a lot of work to be done there. Um, I think in terms of decoloniality um, and the style in which um, academic work and academic research is presented. So what does all of that mean for my positionality? Well, really, it was mixed. Like me, I have, that is an, an, an intentional pun in case you're wondering, and it was messy. 
So for those of you that have started to do some research uh, or, or reading around positionality, um, who know a little bit, there's debates around are you an insider or are you an outsider? Um, are you a black woman researching black women or uh, so an insider or are you a, a, a white man uh, researching black women and therefore an outsider? And then it's not that straightforward for most. <laughs> um, so what determines an insider? What determines an outsider? Um, was I both? With whom? Um, when? And where? Um, so if I was both, was I both in the same ways, at the same times, in the same places? Was that consistent? And the answer is no. It was really mixed and messy. So to explain that, I did my field work um, in refugee community and support groups. Um, so yes, I've used the term refugee, but again, for that, for all sanctuary seekers, their support groups, community support groups, women's groups in particular. And I did that around um, Wales. Um, for someone who claims asylum in the UK, if they, they need support, which is vast, vast, 90% do um, financial support then they are displaced which means they are sent with no choice to anywhere around the, the country to dispersal areas um, at the time I was doing my work Wales had four the dispersal system is in uh, changing uh, particularly in Wales in terms of how many there are um, but that's how it it was set up and then for those who come through schemes like the Syrian um, Voluntary Resettlement Programme or the Afghanistan one, um, they are, are sent to other areas, so not dispersal areas. The idea of this came with the 1999 Immigration Act and New Labour to spread the burden, lovely term, um, so that it's not wasn't just London and the southeast and poor areas. Um, that were, were getting the majority of asylum seekers. And that's how the majority of um, sanctuary seekers um, come to the UK now. It is as individual asylum seekers, not through schemes. So I traveled around Wales to the four dispersal areas and another area and spent time in um, these groups. Um, but each part, of Wales, each of these four cities has its slightly different makeup, has uh, different proportions of the um, asylum seekers um, and refugees population in Wales. So about half are in Cardiff, um, which is the most diverse city in Wales versus Wrexham, which only has about 5% of asylum seekers dispersed there and is a very white population. Um, so, yes, that made a difference, <laughs> to be honest. There also, I am in Cardiff. So some of those groups I spent time in, I took my children to, I volunteered in, and I just spent time hanging out as just a, another person there. Um, others I couldn't get to on such a regular basis. Um, so I went for the purpose of, of, of generating data, of interviewing participants, um, but I also tried to spend time just on those visits um, 
just hanging out as it were as well. Um, obviously I was able to go to women's groups because I'm a woman. Um, so in that respect, I was an insider. They were run by women. They were attended by women. Um, in some of the spaces, um, they were centers and location where it wasn't just women present, but I tended to be in the room or in the group or there at the time that was dedicated to women or women and children. Um, I'm vis visibly black or brown, depending on people's interpretation. Um, and a mother. And I took my children. So I was visibly a mother where I didn't take my children. I'll talk about that in a bit. I did make myself visibly a mother, but also audibly British. And I was talking about this earlier today in some of those spaces um, in uh, Wales, where the population is 95 percent white in those spaces. It was assumed um, more than once that I was there as an asylum seeker or refugee. Um, which was interesting um, and I don't think unimportant. I think it helped gatekeepers feel more comfortable with me. Arguably, it helped some of the women feel more comfortably comfortable with me and we could talk about issues of, of race as well as motherhood and womanhood. Um, but I was also um, British talking to people with very, very precarious legal um immigration status while I have a very very certain one so I've talked about some of this already and that in some of my spaces some of the spaces my status wasn't clear immediately um in some it was um in some it wasn't um in some it was perhaps unclear um but I didn't try and hide who I was. I was very honest and op open. Um, and at times I would be in some spaces as just a, a woman and a mother, a member of, of the local community um, joining in. Um, and at other times I was there as the researcher or flitting between the two. And at times I was both. <laughs> I was in the spaces both. Um, so it wasn't not not um, at all clear cut. I'm just going to check. Yeah. So on the right hand side of these slides, you can see that I've got a little clipboard and I'm going to whiz through now some of the last slides. Um, so I've been talking too much and give a chance for some questions. So what does some of this mean in terms of the practical realities of, of, of how I went about things? So I had, as I said, that deliberate contextual ethical distinction from other forms of interviews um, that asylum seekers and refugees may have gone through. Journalists, perhaps home office interrogations, police interviews in the UK or elsewhere. Um, and that was really important. And I wouldn't have been allowed into one space by one gatekeeper if I hadn't made that distinction and that I was coming in as a woman and as a mother to speak to women and mothers in that regard, in that way, mother to mother, not to go through a list of, of questions and interrogate. 
Now, for me, this was really important because I wasn't there to extract data um, or extract information. I was having a dialogue and a conversation with them. So having a chat over a cuppa, for want of a better analogy, and sometimes quite literally. If it was in a space where I hadn't taken my children, I might introduce myself as a researcher, yes, but also as a mother and, and show photos of my, of my kids on my phone. They might show me photos of theirs or call their children over and, and chat with them. That rapport um, was built so that I could have that dialogue with them. Not to, to fake friendship, um, and there is a literature that, that discusses that, um, but to, to, to build that rapport and, and have that dialogue that is, is, was conversing with. Um, we would empathise, sympathise, we laughed together a lot. I laughed a lot in interviews with women and I maintained friendly con uh, contact between interviews as I was planning a longitudinal, um, and I say planning because the pandemic got in the way, but I was planning a, a longitudinal um, piece of research, which meant I would be returning to the women to ask them if they want, were willing to, to speak with me again. So I main contact, contact in between. Again, if I'm you know, honest, there's, there's something for, for me as the researcher alone to gain from that, making sure I've lo lost uh, um, participants, but also it is not being that extractive. Here I turn up when I want something from you and only then do you hear from me type approach. And continuing that consideration. So as I said, I generated generated data with my participants, not from them. So uh, dialogue with them, I, they drew, you can see some of the drawings here. Um, I provided the materials and they did the drawings with them. Um, for like, photo elicitation, so that was with them, they chose the photos, they gave the description. Um, I then edited photos later um, and they approved my editing. Um, the photos were particularly important with the impact of the pandemic as I moved to remote methods and chose not to continue with such an, a focus on interviewing um, because it didn't feel ethically okay. Um, I'd chosen to go into women's spaces and take myself into their spaces, not bring them into mine. Um, because ethically that felt the right thing to do for their comfort, for their rapport, for their well-being in case they disclosed things and got um, upset or distressed. I didn't feel I could do any of that in the same way while working remotely. I didn't feel I could hang up the phone and leave potentially a distressed woman and not know what might have happened, that she might be on her own, she might have her children with her, should they hear some of it, should my children hear some of it, as well as digital exclusion reasons. So the photographs became more important. So I was hoping to collaborate and I tried to collaborate, but without putting a heavy burden of labor on my participants. So, and different people would take different approaches to this, but for me, um, I you can't pay asylum seekers. I didn't have the budget to pay people anyway. 
um I didn't want to be asking a lot of of time and labor um for, from women um I felt that would feel unfair but neither did I want to be ext extractive so it's that that balancing ground that I constantly and again constantly considering my positionality and how best to to do that to be collaborative to continue that contact and check-ins um get their approval through the photo editing worked on I created visual digital stories as a little mini visual story at the, at the top there um where they were created of individual narratives and stories they were produced approved again by the individual participants so done with them but with me taking the burden of labor so I had the privilege of time and funding to be able to do this work doesn't always feel like it as a PhD student that you've got time or or money not everybody has funding of course um but I did um whatever we think of the the level of of, of stipends um, I could empathise with the women and as a mother, but I had an experience of, of seeking sanctuary in Wales, of being coming from refugee background. I was trusted. I am trusted um, as a mother, respected as a researcher. But is it always that way round? Um, and I made mistakes because I don't share experiences. Um, and that privilege um, comes with the thoughts of power imbalances and I did have one to one interviewee where the power balance felt very wrong I was there to get information um to use that ex more extractive type phrase um but really this was a woman who was only speaking to me because she was desperate desperate being the right word for information so I helped provide that information and um have not included cut the interview short and have not included that in my work and again continuing to consider my positionality why the woman agreed to speak with me what she hoped to get from me from what she knew of me and who I was and why I was there um I'll skim this a little bit um just to say I had some some really wonderful feedback um there were negative so there were difficulties but um someone telling me I'm so glad you're doing this some of them even reflecting me in their creative methods so on this image here on the right I'm represented by the lines of Jules at the bottom um and she's represented her family through the rest of the drawing so quite touched by that and we're still in touch Women saying I'm inspiring to them. I can't say I necessarily um, <laughs> would agree. Um, but equally, I felt that the other way around. Um, I, I felt that some of the women were really inspiring to me. Some of the women agreed to talk with me, wanting to learn more about what's all involved. But that felt more equal than the, than the or more better balanced for want of a better term actually than the situation I described before um I was definitely able to gain access to spaces as I said before um because of who I am not just as because I'm a researcher um and I was able to build a rapport and friendships um in ways that a man maybe even a white woman 
might not have been able to. Um, and yes, I did make friendships and that's something I can, can discuss later. That's something that people do consider the boundaries of. Um, but these aren't, things are not positive unless I was and am ethically responsible. Which means <laughs> continuing to reflect on my positionality. So should I be doing this, this research? You know, I'm not, if I don't have that asylum seeking refugee background, am I the right person to be doing this? Um, how can I use the privileges that I do have um, and the experiences that, that, that I have, um, both of, of that relative privilege, but also of the discrimination and difficulties that I have faced as a, as a black mixed, mixed race woman, mother, how can I use those to support to amplify and to liberate, not to consider that I'm saving or that I'm speaking for or that I'm discovering. Considering that presentation and representation matter um, and they really do, but when I'm not representative in, in all ways, and again, is that possible of the group that I'm researching with, how do I achieve that? And I've done that through some of my more visual and collaborative ways. The ethics of anonymization. Um, and I talk about more about this next week, but particularly with uh, photographs of people and whether anonymizing is disempowering um, and um, allowing people to real names to be used is, is liberating. Um, and whether there are times as a researcher, whether you need to decide for your participants or is that infantilizing? No straightforward answers. And in case anyone's wondering, I kept everything anonymized for various reasons. And um, this is a doctoral event. So for in, within the academy even, but also elsewhere, that racism isn't only about phenotypes. Um, it's relevant for my positionality. It was relevant for my um, epistemological framework, relevant for my participants. They might be white, as it were, uh, visibly, but maybe still racialized based on their accent, their first language, their immigration status in particular. Um, and this was deeply relevant, as I said, for my approach. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between.